Uh, today's lecture is being co-sponsored by the St. Benedict Forum and the Tocqueville Forum here at Hope College. St. Benedict Forum seeks to promote and nurture intellectual work done from the heart of the Catholic Church. Today's speaker is uniquely qualified to do just that. The Tocqueville Forum is a student-centered organization which explores the meaning of liberty properly understood and how it can ground a good polity. It was Tocqueville, himself a devout Catholic, who came to America in the atomized Jacksonian period and responded to American democracy with what he called a religious terror. He feared that democracy would lead to a fracturing of the polity, toward bureaucratic centralization on the one hand and hedonistic individualism on the other, a symbiosis of autonomy and materialism. These increasingly autonomous selves would sacrifice their liberty to the soft despotism of the centralized bureaucracy that attended to their material needs, the petty pleasures with which they would glut their souls. He wrote, because the civilization of ancient Rome perished in consequence of the invasion of the barbarians, we are perhaps too apt to think that civilization cannot perish in any other manner. If the light by which we are guided is ever extinguished, it will dwindle by degrees and expire of itself. By dint of close adherence to mere application, principles will be lost sight of, and when the principles were wholly forgotten, the methods derived from them would be ill-pursued. Ill Tocqueville believed that the key to sustaining American democracy was and always would be religious liberty. Religion, the first of America's political institutions, he argued, could alone mitigate the egalitarian consequences and libertarian impulses of democracy. Religious liberty was the linchpin of all liberty. But license would seek to destroy genuine liberty, and the state would be the agent of such destruction. Tocqueville believed that American democracy could only be sustained by a religious liberty that was reflective of and grounded in Catholicism. The church needed to act as an institutional makeweight to the increasing power of the state. And so it is a moment of consequence for us that the Catholic Church is at the epicenter of current debates about religious liberty. From this, we realize that something momentous and profoundly consequential is afoot. Our speaker today is well positioned to help us understand what is really at stake. Dr. Chad Hecknell teaches historical and systematic theology at the Catholic University of America, a wonderful institution in our nation's capital. <laughs> There are a number of graduates in this audience. A central ecclesial institution in the midst of the nation's central political institutions, where he specializes in political theology as well as Catholic doctrine. He has written widely on issues in political theology and is a fre frequent public commentator on issues both within the church and as regards the church's relation to the modern world. Please join me in welcoming him. So much. I just wanted to listen to Jeff talk about Tocqueville. I mean, <laughs> stop right there. It's a great privilege to be here. Can you all hear me okay? Speak up, you say in the back. I'll try. So the title of my talk, The Fate of Religious Liberty, comes hard on the heels of the Supreme Court hearing oral arguments uh, in the government's case against the Little Sisters of the Poor. Quite an image between the government and the Little Sisters. The government's attempt to show compelling interest was so weak, even liberal justices questioned whether Solicitor General Verrilli had conceded the point. As Chief Justice Roberts noted, the number of exclusions and exemptions that the government already provides corporations and other institutions seriously undermines the government's claim to have a compelling interest, which should override religious liberty protections afforded to elderly nuns under the First Amendment. And yet, and yet, pundits and legal experts immediately predicted a split 4-4 decision. Save the conscience of Stephen Breyer. Which is essentially a loss for religious liberty upholding the lower court decisions. If Justice Scalia were alive, maybe we could hope with greater assurance that a judgment could come in favor of religious liberty. Yet here we are, even with the surprising uh, request for further solutions from the defense. The government has presented such a weak case 
on the merits, it should lose. And yet, we're doubtful. The Supremes look for a solution favorable to the sisters, but can we have any such confidence? We stand at the precipice of widespread doubts about the future of religious liberty in this country. And this should concern all of us. Because if religious liberty is lost, as Tocqueville recognized, then we cannot have any confidence that any of our other liberties will stand with it. In truth, religious liberty has been under threat in America for much longer than we care to admit. In 1993, the nearly unanimous passage of the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, shorthand RIFRA, which Bill Clinton signed into law, is itself a sign that the American experiment in religious liberty, as such, has been under threat for much longer than the recent battle. The emergence of entire law firms dedicated to the cause, such as the Alliance Defending Freedom or the Beckett Fund, <clears throat> indicate a need when you have big legal firms rise up in defense of one single aim, religious liberty. It tells you that the threat is existential, strong, powerful. A defense of religious liberty has become, for many, many people, a full-time profession. That should be striking and worrying to all of us. We now all know about the Green family, owners of Hobby Lobby, and their fight for an exemption to the HHS contraception mandate. Many observed, including the Solicitor General, that the recent Obergefell decision was going to create problems for religious liberty. And sure enough, soon after the decision, activists descended on the state of Indiana to dismantle their own state-level referendum. And just this week, the so-called bathroom bill in North Carolina was challenged by gender ideologues. And Tennessee reacted to waves of social change by initiating a somewhat silly and counterproductive suggestion that the Bible should become the state book, a kind of protest against social transformation, which seems to threaten existing cultural and Christian trends towards a social good. Whether the issue is abortion, contraception, or the redefinition of marriage and the family, which is to say the nature of society as we know it, it's fair to say that the American vision of religious liberty as a linchpin of our freedom is under threat. When religious liberty is described by some as mere cover for bigotry and hatred, and when courts endorse this view, teaching us through the law, you can be forgiven for asking after the faith of religious liberty. Legal defenders are themselves embattled. Two summers ago, before Obergefell and the Little Sisters case, I attended a seminar at Villanova Law with legal scholars who specialize in the religious liberty. As a theologian, I was shocked to discover that they themselves were convinced that they were fighting a losing battle. They thought they were fighting a rear-guard defense, and still are. A rear-guard defense against overwhelming cultural and political corporate pressure. Some of the scholars predicted that religious liberty protections would be almost entirely eroded within five years. <coughs> this was two years ago. Others were more hopeful that legal defenses could significantly slow the erosion of religious liberty in America. They were the hopeful ones who could slow the erosion. But all agreed that the problems were upstream from law, politics. By that they meant, and we understand, that the problems were social and cultural before they were legal and political. And I want to say also that the problems were philosophical and theological, moral and linguistic. What struck me most at this seminar was that for many of these legal <coughs> scholars, this was an irreversible trend an irreversible trend of our late liberal order, and a trend that would have knock-on effects which would affect all of our liberties. This was a devastating prescription for our future. <clears throat> Liberty, if you can keep it. The age of liberal toleration seems to have passed into an age of illiberal liberalism intent on unsettling, as it once had before, the privileged protection of religion. And now as then, that religion, 
primarily means Christianity. Yet the illiberal liberalism that now attacks religious liberty shouldn't be so surprising to us, should it? It's, is it very different than John Locke's attitude towards Catholics and atheists, both of whom he thought should be excluded for their transnational allegiances in terms of Catholics obedient to the popes, or their disinterest in giving any allegiance at all, such as the atheists? I wonder if the attack on religious liberty today is really so different from those early liberal Lockean exclusions, which is to say that perhaps the problem is not only with religious liberty today, but with religious liberty within the liberal frame, and with our concepts which constitute the very notion of religious liberty, namely religion and liberty. And so today, mainly what I want to do, though I'll come back to the contemporary scene, is take us back into the history of two terms, the history of the term religion and the history of the term liberty. First, religio, the Latin, I'll, I'll make Latin my reference point because I know it, but uh, religio and libertas will be the key reference points before we come back to a reflection on the fate of religious liberty today. The ancients were not indifferent to religion, but they were polytheists, and this is to be radically pluralist in terms of your theology. Some Romans would have pointed to Jupiter and thought of him as the god of all gods, and a thinker like Augustine would have seen in that a shadowy semblance of and a faint desire for the one true god. But on the whole, the ancients and the ancient cities had their minor and their major gods, local gods. They had different devotions for all of them. They proliferated throughout the empire. When a city was captured, one of the first things an occupying army would do was to destroy the sacred shrines of the gods of that city, which was not just a symbolic display, but a recognition that the city was no longer under the protection of the gods. The Roman Empire often practiced religious toleration, we would call it, with respect to the lands it occupied. Think of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. He works with the chief priests and most likely regards the God of Israel in the same way that he regards the gods of other cities under Roman control. Since Romans' basic view was polytheistic, they had no problem viewing religio as local. For it was religio that constituted a particular tribe. Local people, local traditions were often respected if their religio posed no apparent conflict to the Roman Empire and its aims. Christianity, however, was something new, not something merely local. There was certainly, right from the start, an inkling that Christianity might pose a threat to the empire. Here was a religio which claimed not to be attached to any one particular earthly city, but was rather the religio which could attach all people to the one city of God in every city. This religio was one, true, universal. It was comprehensive, not local, not merely local. This comprehensive account of religio, this universal religion, was one of the distinguishing things about Christianity, and in at least one sense could be seen to compete with the Roman Empire's own self-understanding to be universal. Pilate himself seems unsure of the charge that Christianity poses a threat to the comprehensive claims of empire, but he seems satisfied by the fact that Christ isn't advocating a contradiction, which would obviate the need to pay his salary by way of taxes. That was enough to please Pilate. In the City of God, Augustine gave the classic definition that Romans would have recognized, a definition of religion. Namely, that religio could be understood horizontally. Religio had a horizontal <coughs> definition as something displayed in human relationships. Religio was something which connected families, connected friendships. This was a religio which could be seen horizontally, but there was also the religio which 
had a vertical connection, which attached us to the gods, or as Christianity would proclaim, to God. <coughs> this sense of religio as attachment, both horizontal and vertical, derives from religere. And the Latin root ligare is present in our, in our English word ligament. You know what a ligament is? Those connective tissues which bind together the parts of the human body into a whole person. As Augustine treats the definition, religio literally concerns the religamenting of the human family to one another, horizontally, and to God, vertically. Religio was a complex idea. Romans had no problem recognizing both the horizontal and the vertical. At heart, religio is what unites us, and it does so through means of sacrifice. Romans would have no problem recognizing the importance of sacrifice for attaching us to the various gods and cults of the gods. Through sacrifice, through worship, through a comprehensive set of social relationships, the definition of religio plays both to the pagan understanding and to the Christian understanding. It is a relatively stable term in the 5th century. Constantine was the first Roman emperor to see the implications of Christianity for the unity of the empire. One can question his understanding of the Christian faith, but his edict of Milan uh, was an edict of toleration in 313, and it shifted the localist patchwork of unity which polytheism provided throughout the empire so that Christianity was not um, simply a licit religio, but eventually a preference for Catholic or universal Christianity. This was surely one of the reasons why Constantine thought Christian bishops should gather to articulate the common faith of a universal Christian religio at the Council of Nicaea in 325. It certainly served the church in God's providence, but it also helped to articulate the comprehensiveness of religio that was becoming increasingly central even to empire itself, so much so that Christianity could, in certain circles, come to be seen as a new civil religion. And certainly later Christian emperors, such as Theodosius, will regard it as such, just as emperors such as Julian the Apostate will try to turn back the clock. Religio in Augustine's day has a relatively stable meaning, as I have said. The context, though, is over true and false not what religion means, but what is true and false religion. What religion is it which truly unites us to the supreme good, which we call God? His arguments win the day in certain respects, but they do so at an inopportune time as the empire crumbles. Yet his thought continues to guide Christianity, continues to expand even as the empire falls. By the time Charlemagne is crowned emperor by Pope Leo on Christmas Day a few hundred years later in 800 AD, the basic articulation of Christianity as the true religion, and thus the religion of empire, uh, that the empire would prefer is remembered simply in the phrase, holy Roman Empire. The medieval arrangements are politically complex, but for hundreds of years, no one questions which religion, religion is to be recognized by the variety of political orders at play in Europe. It's the one true religio that is now under sway of the Catholic Church. Theologians would increasingly refine the category. They were able to distinguish religio as arising from a natural inclination of the human person towards the good, towards the supreme good, which, makes, which alone makes us happy. In this way, they could speak of religio in natural as well as supernatural terms, but basically they saw it as something essential to the flourishing of a people. Religio was a common good, which facilitated our participation in the supreme good. And so, it was not only right for the civil order to recognize the true religion because everyone was baptized, as they were, but also simply because it was best for the state to recognize what enabled people to be truly free to pursue the good the truth and the view. I don't have time to examine the effects of the Reformation on our concept of religio, but suffice it to say that the principle that each prince should choose his own religion for his own 
uh, kingdom shifts the very meaning of religio back to a localist framework, shifting its validity out of the realm of truth or falsity and into the realm of the will of the sovereign. The will of the sovereign now becomes important for constituting the truth or falsity is falls out, the will of the sovereign becomes the basic criteria for discerning the religio of the people. And that shift is largely possible because conceptual shifts in the word libertas. So now I want to turn to libertas and shifts in the word liberty. Religious liberty has become a contested concept not only because of the category of religion being challenged by secularizing trends in history, but also because of a much deeper challenge in the concept of liberty itself, which even precedes the shifts in the concept of religion. For older thinkers like Augustine and Aquinas, our liberty is caused by the fact that we are rational, substantial souls created in God's image. We have an intrinsic dignity by virtue of having been made in God's image, made for union with God, made for friendship with God, we are fearfully and wonderfully made upright, above the other beasts, pointed towards heaven. Our lips are made for kissing, as well as for eating. Our arms are made for building up the human community, as well as for the embrace of lovers and children. <coughs> Sorry, I have a little four-month-old baby who's back in Washington, D.C., so all I have to do is say children and watch your company. <laughs> As rational beings, we are made to choose those goods which make us happy. Now, this does not mean that freedom does not extend to the will. Our freedom is caused by our rational nature, Thomas Aquinas teaches us. It resides in our will, but so the truly free decision is the one which depends on our knowledge of the good, and our ability to, to distinguish the good from evil, or a men's bathroom from a women's bathroom. Sorry. <laughs> For choosing evil does not make us happy. It never does. So the only truly free choice for both Augustine and Thomas is the choice for the particular, or the common goods. Here, slavery and liberty are very much bound up with virtue and vice, misery, happiness. And the turn away from the good is viewed always as irrational enslavement. And the highest freedom is always freedom for the truth, the good, and the beautiful. The text of Genesis 2, 16 through 17 is always close to hand, could be cited in evidence. You may eat freely of every tree in the garden, God tells us. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. What does this mean? For we are to recognize here that we are creatures. And it is our creator who has set forth the goodness of creation in which we have been made free. We have been made free for the goodness of things, for the truth of things. But we are not free to decide what is good and what is evil. That is not for us our freedom. That is for God to decide what is good and what is evil. We must recognize that we are creatures. We must recognize that there is something, a power greater than ourselves. We must recognize what is not in our power. And we seize when we seize the power to decide what is good and evil, we ultimately choose not our freedom, but our death. For such, free, for such thinkers, our freedom is a scalar thing as well. We can grow into our freedom. It's not a static thing. It's one that can increase. We can grow into freedom, or we can turn away from freedom. By actualizing our potential for virtue and by avoiding vice, we incline ourselves toward freedom, since freedom simply is a participation in the good which alone can make us happy. In this view, the only freedom is growth in wisdom and in virtue. 
and the habits of virtue. And our freedom grows <coughs> as we exercise not just our will, but our intellect to act on our natural inclination for the good, true, and beautiful. This is not to deny the obstacles that sin always places in our way of participating in this freedom. Not at all. Simply to say that we are made for it in a way that the beast is not. We are made for freedom in a way that the beast is not. We are made a little lower than the angels in that we can misuse our freedom. And the misuse of our freedom arises from disordered loves and the will, as Augustine always teaches, but not from our rational nature as such, the principles constitutive of our nature, as Thomas likes to say, which means principally, which remain principally intact after the fall. Aquinas thinks that the most basic inclinations of the rational soul are towards self-evident things, among which he he includes our inclination to be alive rather than to be dead. I think we can all recognize that. All of us have an inclination to live rather than to die. We all have a natural inclination to the good of propagating the human family. Not just the sexual urge, but also in the basic fact that we are social and political animals. That we were social creatures. We come out here tonight to not just hear somebody talk, but to be together. We're social animals. And he sees that we have also a natural inclination to worship. This is self-evident, that we seek after causes. We want to know why things have come to be. We desire happiness, and we want to know the source of happiness. The fall damages our relationship with God, but it doesn't eradicate our basic fundamental ordering to the good in which our freedom resides. Now, this basic view of freedom, emphasizing our rational agency as the basis for our freedom for the truth, our freedom for the good and beautiful, is challenged in the 14th century, most famously by William of Ockham. Occam was a Franciscan friar, often in disagreement with friars of his own order, so I don't mean to disparage all Franciscans by picking on Occam. Um, but he also took issue with the Dominican Thomas Aquinas. In particular, Occam took issue with his older conception of liberty, seeking to break the crucial linkages between the universal and the particular, between the intellect and the will, between freedom and the good. Occam invents a philosophical view called nominalism, which calls into question the very notion of a human nature, common good. The particular concrete individuals that you and I are exist. You exist, you exist, I exist. But we are not, in Occam's view, participants in something real called human nature. That's a kind of grammatical fiction as far as Occam is concerned that may help us in various ways to talk, but it's not really real. Allied to this nominalist view is Occam's radical emphasis, then, on the human will. It's your will, and your will, and your will, and my will. We're all a collection of autonomous wills. Will is what defines us, and is preeminent in the soul. Instead of saying with Aquinas that our will depends on intellect, Occam wants to say the inverse that our intellect depends on the will. In fact, all reality depends on will. Why? Because God creates the world and sustains it. How does he do it? By his divine will. Then it follows for Occam that if everything depends on divine will, in some sense, in his image, everything will also depend on will. Since God is supremely willful, so too are his creatures constituted. By will. This explains to Occam why there is a conflict between our wills and God's will. And it explains why God must give the law. Why must God give the law? Not as an expression of his goodness, in which we could participate, but in order to impose his will <coughs> upon our wills so as to harmonize 
any disjunction between divine and will conflict. Occam generates a view of freedom radically detached from any conception of the true and the good and the beautiful because those aren't real things. Those are universal that aren't really real in which we couldn't participate at least. The effect of this on liberty is momentous. Now the individual is an autonomous, free-floating chooser, lost in the cosmos, to borrow from Walker Percy, a free agent who is neutral or indifferent to the good ends already inscribed in nature because there is no nature which has something inscribed in it. Perhaps you can already imagine, then, what such a conception will do when you apply this concept of liberty to religious liberty more of that in a moment, but this new view of liberty should be seen as largely negative, a freedom from. The older view you could summarize as being a freedom for the truth, freedom for participation in the good to come. This sets in motion a powerful account of freedom whose influence can be seen to various degrees throughout modernity. To be sure, the older view survives, doesn't disappear, and confused combinations of both views of liberty can sometimes be found in the very same writers and thinkers. But it's fair to say that Occam's view of freedom haunts modernity. From Hobbes' war of all against all, since that's what this view of freedom demands, is a war of all wills against all. And thus, if all of our wills are in conflict with each other, we need a powerful, overwhelming, sovereign, with which to reconcile competing conflictual wills. This is Leviathan, powerful sovereign, to hold all these conflicts in abeyance, the way God holds all these conflicts in abeyance. From Hobbes, uh, war of all against all, to Nietzsche's will to power. To Peter Singer's idea that parents can freely choose, as autonomous choosers, whether their child lives or dies, even in the weeks months following their death, their, their birth. The older and newer views of liberty can be detected in classical liberalism. Though the more recent progressivist and libertarian views of freedom much more closely resemble Hawking. Isaiah Berlin's famous essay on two concepts of liberty hide this history like an open secret, arguing that we can speak of positive and negative liberty, a freedom for and a freedom from. But Berlin insists, predictably, that we only have recourse to negative liberty. Negative liberty in our modern liberal rights regimes always means an immunity from something, a freedom from, not a freedom for. This has become the dominant view of libertas, and when applied to religious liberty, it must mean that we should all be free from religion. Religious liberty becomes under these two paired conceptions now a freedom from religion. The effect is easy enough to see. It inclines us not towards seeing religion as one of those goods that would make us free by participation, but rather inclines us towards viewing religious liberty as the right of all people to be free from religion altogether. In this sense, the newer view of religion, inexorably trans-atheistic, even in the name of its supposed neutrality. Okay, now these are stories, both the story about religion and the story about liberty, stories of decline, of a category of religion in decline, a category <coughs> of, of liberty in decline. Now because of my hope and, and my faith in divine providence, I don't think that history is on uh, set straight lines of either progress or decline. So now I want uh, to you know, raise the question about whether or not we, are, we have this inexorable move, it seems, in this country, but also the, the modern West, towards viewing religious liberty as something which is a freedom from. Now, there is a minority position in American uh, law uh, that my own boss, John Garvey, articulates, which is that the early view of religious liberty was much more like the ancient view of liberty. 
that, that religious liberty was not a immunity right. It was not a freedom from something. But religious liberty was provided because we must be free for the highest good. And the highest good is what makes us really free. And so the first freedom that the founders articulated was a freedom for this highest good. And the highest good was the freedom to know the truth about God, to seek the truth about God. And so what I want to put to you into a discussion tonight with you is this idea uh, that it could be turned around. That you could make a pitch, in a sense, for the older concept of religion. You could make a pitch for the older concept of libertas. It's genuine and serious. In fact, the only serious account which leads to human happiness and leads to human liberty. Because if we lose religious liberty, we lose a regime which would make it easier for our children to pursue the true and the good and the beautiful. We pursue our well our wellian worst. Alright, thank you very much. I skipped uh, uh, about seven pages of my paper towards the end in which I uh, uh, talk about the Catholic Church's view of religious liberty, one that has not been in decline, um, but one that's been in somewhat controversial development. Uh, the, the Church's understanding of religious liberty, though, always presumes, even in its modern uh, post-Vatican II recognition of a universal right to religious liberty, it preserves the basic principle uh, of, of a substantive account of religion and a substantive account of uh, liberty that is a liberty for the truth. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I caught the way you characterized the new concept of religion. I follow the liberty stuff, but the religious yeah. stuff. What I have in mind here is one thing I see in you know the last the last 250 years, say since the Deists and Hume, is religion gets redefined um, to mean all those kind of warring sects and worldviews that disagree with each other. It gets put into the category of the will of the powerful, right? So those who are most powerful constitute what counts as religio. I mean, I. You could even say that the, the modern challenge to religious liberty is actually not a challenge to religio as such, but to certain kinds of religion. And then the idea would be that the government's role is to save us from all this potential conflict. And, and from what's deemed as bad religio. What's deemed as bad religio. And then the irony is always that the tradition in which this particular new concept of religion is embedded is itself a worldview and value system, right? And in a sense, could be table turned and called a religion itself. But it's one that gets established, right? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I thought about developing in this paper but didn't was the idea that one of the one explanation for why we have so many challenges to religious liberty is because uh, the, the regime does not. Uh, take kindly to any religio that doesn't endorse certain things. Uh, and so you could see that um, our present order is actually its own civil religion, which is disciplining and punishing those religions that do not conform to the way in which the powerful, the will of the sovereign, determines what that religion should be and shouldn't be. Yeah, so that's a lot of Dewey, for example, you can see that especially the Catholic Church is especially um, an enemy of the civil. And because it's because the Catholic Church maintains the overview of liberty, that liberty is not, um, you know, we, we liberals, I say we liberals, in a liberal order, we have to reckon with the idea that um, everything to do with our social order uh, lionizes this uh, view of the autonomous, self-determining subject, right? Who, all of, whatever you self-determine as an individual, 
I mean, you're like Occam's dream, right? Because you're, you're this autonomous, free-floating, lost in the cosmos agent, and anything you choose, and you want to choose, is good. Now, why then would it be a threat that elderly nuns don't want to choose contraception? It's because their rationale is based on the fact that they are resisting the very notion of an autonomous choosing liberty and pointing to our participation in the good as the source of all liberty. And that is the fundamental challenge of two concepts of liberty. Uh, and both of those concepts are at play in competing notions of what religious liberty is. Question on that To what extent are the little sisters, when I say this is someone's filed brief and support yeah. little sisters, are they, are they actually unwittingly getting into this understanding of religious will? Because they're not articulating that they're right to, I mean, they're the right. But in, ter in terms of talking about the freedom that they should have not to participate in the contraceptive mandate, they're, they're not articulating the vision of the good, but rather just sort of articulating the vision of their will. We don't want to will and participate in this, rather than saying that there's something here wrong with doing this. Yes and no. So it seems to me the Little Sisters of the Poor and other um, plaintiffs, Catholic University of America, um, my employer, uh, we we are, in, in one sense, uh, playing by the rules. We're playing by the rules of liberal rights tradition. And the liberal rights tradition is built on this idea of the autonomous choosing. Uh, that's that's a, a new conception of rights. But there, there was a conception of rights that belonged to the older concept of liberty. And there, in the older concept of, of liberty, rights were always individual rights balanced against the common good. And so. We preserve that in the catechism with the always balancing the language of rights and responsibilities or rights and duties. You go back to the older tradition, the language was always of duties and rarely of rights. Now, it's always of rights and rarely of duties. And that shows you something of the reversal. But the older view is that individual rights were primarily based on a liberty for participation in the common good. And in defense of the Little Sisters, I would want to say they actually can be working on both levels. They can actually be saying, we are exercising our rights as a participation for freedom and the common good. And here's what the common good is. And then they can say what that common good is. Um, you know, the common good of life, the common good of caring for the, for the elderly and, and the infirm. Um, you know, that, that gives them an opportunity to say, not that there aren't any rights, but that rights are ordered to goods. And the goods should be named as things which are real that can be participated in and judged by the, by categories of true, true and false and not who has the most power. You know, if time, sorry, not time, if Apple or um, uh, uh, the, the, the NBA puts economic pressure on, that's, that's not categories of true and false, of, of what counts as good and evil. Those are categories of who has the most power. So now corporations are the sovereigns who are going to reconcile our conflicting wills over an issue like contraception or same-sex marriage or whether or not we should have bathrooms for men and women who are obviously biologically different. Uh, it gets, starts to get absurd because you have to you have to increasingly pile up the mechanisms by which you reconcile wills and conflict. And the only way you can do that is by a Hobbesian kind of overwhelming power. And that power has, has sometimes been the state, sometimes been economic power, and it's increasingly economic power for corporations to reconcile our wills by force. That's why we're not having democratic debates about these issues. No, not in any state are we having real democratic debate about any of these issues. They're being sorted out by corporations, by politicians. situation half as well. 
maybe less than that. Huh? Um, but I did live there for seven years. I, here's one, one thing. It's not not just the the older Catholic roots of Europe, but also if you if you if you look at all the European constitutions, uh, they mention human dignity. Uh, if you look at our constitution, we don't mention human dignity. We mention rights a lot, um, and, and the liberal tradition depends on rights. Um, but it's hard to dictate where the rights flow from. We're really good at saying uh, what rights we should have and what rights we can claim for, but we, we're rubbish. And Europe is bad at this too, but uh, we're rubbish at being able to say why we have why we have X, other than will, other than I demand to have this right. Now, one possible uh, angle on the European aspect is that human dignity might be at least some foothold into an account of the source of those rights. Where do the rights flow from? Well, some vague, rational account of human dignity or to some transcendent end. Maybe you don't want to talk about God, so you want to say that human rights flow from some dignity that human beings have by virtue of our transcendent nature. Then you're then you're getting it something like a foothold into the older account of liberty, and maybe that could protect you from the acids of of the autonomous choosing. But, but uh, I don't I don't really see the uh, the the European situation as as um, the European situation was always worse on religious liberty than America. So I don't see it as preferable. It's just a different context. Um, but I think the same history is playing out. Lacy Tay in France. Uh, I mean Emile Combes. You know uh, wanted wanted to claim that the bishops who were refusing his nominees, or that the, the, the Pope refusing Emile Combes' nominees for bishops was infringing on French rights. Um, the French government should be able to appoint the bishops. It's like old investiture controversies, but now put in the rights tradition. Um, the history of European religious liberty is very, very bad. And, and actually papal teaching teaching of the popes in the 19th and 20th century was built up around that fight, the fight for the freedom of the church, uh, meant that you were in, they were increasingly trying to articulate um, the, the privileges and protections that the church should have in increasingly secularizing um, nation states that were really trying to restrict the church's freedom. Yes, sir. I'd like to hear more about your optimism um, for the West, I think. Um, oh, I don't know if I expressed all <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that's all. I thought we could discuss plans. And correct me if I if I misheard you, but um, I think I think one of the things you mentioned there at the end was that the founding fathers perhaps had some sense of this traditional view of liberty. I think they have a mix. A mix. Okay. Yeah. And what I mean, what what sort of evidence? you have to, to, kind of, to kind of bolster that, that to, to, to bolster the view of the mix? Or yeah, I mean, because I guess, I guess you hear a lot that a lot of their views were based on John Locke, which yeah. it's hard to see uh, it's hard to see that as the tradition. And, and I think right? the, the Lockean strand mixes with certain classical strands, Stoic strands, um, which uh, I think at least are aware of something like participating in the common good, which is ordered to the highest good. Those strands are really there. Um, and of course, when they take on certain biblical, when they combine with, with the biblical, uh, you get, I think, um, you get, you get um, mixed in with the Lockean, Jeffersonian, you get uh, certain um, hints of, and especially in the liberty clauses, you get, a, you get, a, get hints of that this is a freedom for something that's good. Um, uh, the establishment clause uh, is can be viewed, I think, and is viewed today uh, in a progressive America as as an immunity right or free from religion. 
But I, I think um, uh, John Garvey's book on what are freedoms for kind of charts out the various aspects of the American tradition and why why we and he knows that history much better than I do. Why why there is reason to believe uh, that the only reason why you provide in, as your first liberty, as Tocqueville recognizes, religious liberty, is because you think everything is flowing towards the highest good. All the median common goods that we can participate in, the, this is a common good right here, we're all sharing in the common good. Um, the family's a common good, particular friendships are common goods, these are all median common goods. But then you have to ask, what are they ordered to? What's the highest good to which they are ordered? And the founders did recognize that the highest good was this good of being ordered towards God. And that's what the bishops tended to mean by they built better than they knew. But they built better than they knew in the sense that they understood that this median common good was ordered to a higher end, namely the supreme good that is God. And that's what religious freedom protects but it's also what religious freedom is for. Um, and so, does that mix with the uh, negative concept of liberty? Absolutely. Is that a, are we experiencing the development of that strand? Absolutely. Is there another strand? Yes, I think there is. It's a weak strand. It's a strand that we are uncertain if it can be revived, survived for the future. That help? I am I am um, not hopeful about uh, our current battles. I, I or I, rather, I'm hopeful in very minor ways. I'm hopeful about the supplement that uh, the court offered on Little Sisters of the Poor case. I'm hopeful that we can win skirmishes here and there. I'm hopeful that. Uh, when Catholic University of America is sued uh, for discrimination against same-sex marriage or something like that, that we might still have some time for protection under the First Amendment. But I think part of part of the genius of a, and a positive account of religious liberty for is the hope that religion is the only thing that can be a source of renewal for a people. And that religious liberty, if you lose religious liberty, you lose any hope of renewal. Because you don't have any access to the transcendent causes of new life. And uh, so on that, I worry that if religious liberty, if people don't stand up for a common good, if people don't stand up for the supreme good, that we're going to lose something very fundamental and precious to the median common goods at every level, for our neighborhoods, for our families, for our cities, um, for our churches, for our synagogues. This is really dangerous, uh, that if we lose that, we really do lose America. We really do lose whatever it is we want to say is the common good that the American experiment has been. And this is where Tocqueville's wisdom is right, that religious liberty is the linchpin of the American experiment. We lose that, we lose America. That's a good good spot. So. <laughs>